Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. But let's begin with our text from last week, as it forms a bit of a hole here, beginning at verse 12. If you would please now give attention to the reading of the Word of God. It is holy. It is completely without error. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would attend the preaching and hearing of your word with power, that you, Lord, would open up your word to us, that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would show us our duty to you, that you would point us to your great covenant love for us. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever been out camping, out in the deep woods during a new moon? If you know that experience, even someone as inexperienced with camping as I am knows the difficulties that go along with that. As you're out far away from any city lights, away from any large traffic lamps, but simply out in the nature with no light from the moon and perhaps even it's cloudy and there's no light from the stars. It's difficult to walk two or three feet, isn't it? It's a completely black kind of darkness. Maybe you experienced it inside your home during a hurricane like Ike or Katrina when the power went out. And even though there were some lights outside from nature, from the moon or from the stars, being inside makes it very difficult to see them. And you don't want to go anywhere without some form of artificial light for fear of tripping over something or stepping on someone if you have small children. Well, That's a bit like what the world is like. The world is a very dark place. It's a place very much in need of light. It's a place that is embodied oftentimes by Paul's comments here in our passage this morning. A place that is embodied by grumbling, complaining, where men are blameworthy, where very few are innocent, where there are blemishes everywhere we look. And you see, Paul is laying out for us here in this section of Philippians the task of the church and the task of the Christian 
to live as a light in a dark world, an outworking of working out our salvation, working it out so that others can see, to provide light in a very dark place. And so this morning, I would like us to see three things about the Christian life from this passage. The first is that Paul gives us a command to be active. You see, the Christian life is not one of sitting and watching the cars go by. The Christian life is an active, vibrant life in which we engage each other, ourselves, and our community. And the way in which we do that, Paul says, is by being who we are. So his second command is not just be active, but be who you are. Sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? Well, if I already am, why do I have to be it? Well, we'll see that in a minute. The call of the Christian life is to be who we are. And then finally, Paul says, as you go about these tasks, as you live the Christian life, be encouraged. There is hope. There is encouragement found in each other and in the gospel. So let's begin then by looking at Paul's command here to be active. Paul has just said to us in verses 12 and 13 that we are to work as Christians. We are to obey, you may recall. We are to work out our own salvation. We're to do it with fear and trembling, with an awareness of what is going on. We're to do it for God and for His good pleasure. Now, how do we go about doing this? Paul says something. It's very simple. Maybe I shouldn't even bother to finish the sermon. It's, it's so simple for you to do. I'll just lay it out for you. Paul says, do all things. What? You can't do all things? You can't do everything? And you can't do everything without grumbling or questioning? You see, Paul says that Christian conduct is, first of all, to do everything we do as a Christian. We are not called to have certain church activities in which we act Christianly and then other activities in which we can act like anyone else down the block. You see, the Christian life is a whole life. Every single thing you do at work, at school, in your house, in the kitchen, in the yard, at the football game, everywhere you are, you are there as a child of God, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are to do all things as a Christian. Now, this passage, as Paul lays it out, is reminiscent of an earlier passage. If you would turn back with me to Philippians chapter 1, you may recall that Paul had prayed for this congregation. And he said in verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. You see, Paul has said to them, his prayer is that they would grow in unity, in discernment, in their Christian life, that it would redound to the glory of God in the world and that they would see praise come to the Lord Jesus Christ because of their righteousness in following the gospel. That was Paul's prayer for them. But Paul wasn't just someone to pray and forget. Paul knows what he has prayed for them, and now he is encouraging them on as they do all things to do them with this in mind. Now, we'll come back to this 
section here in chapter 1 a bit later as we see how it lines up quite well with Paul's admonitions and encouragements here in our passage. But let's go on and think about the fact that Paul says, do all things. Now, it sounds very comprehensive. You can't get more comprehensive than a word than all. But I want you to notice as we just look quickly through this passage, what Paul is not saying. You see, when we think of all things or we think of activities that we are to do, perhaps you, like me, the first thing you think of is a list. Well, if I've got to do, I've got to go on vacation, I've got to, I've got to pack, I've got to shut off the water, I've got to cancel the newspaper, I've got to get someone to get my mail, someone's got to water the lawn, it's surely not going to rain every day, go through and I make my list. Or if I were going to undertake a project at the office, we have entire reams of project management software to manage our lists. There are programs to manage the programs to manage our lists. Any mother, any student knows this. But I want you to see something very interesting, that Paul says all things, but he does not give us a course of action. He doesn't say, you must do this, and you must do that, and you must do the other thing. Does he? No, instead he gives us a kind of action that we are to do. He says, do all things, and instead of saying that includes one, two, and three, he says, this is how I want you to do it without grumbling, without complaining. It's not a course of action, it's a kind of action. We might also look and see that Paul is not laying out a rule of life. Many of us, as we seek to train up our children in the way in which they are to go, wisely put before them rules of life. You know those kinds of rules. They're the kinds of rules that when your child does something and mom starts, you know that in our house we don't. All the kids in chorus break out, eat dessert before dinner, or leave the house without cleaning our room. Right? There's those rules that are just laid down. But you see, Paul doesn't do that. That would be quite easy for us. Rather, he lays down the more difficult task of saying what sort of person we should be. Again, not a rule of life, but rather the sort of person we should be. Blameless, innocent, children of God. The third thing that we'll see here as we go in depth is to see that Paul is not advocating a certain type of social involvement. Paul does not say, be lights in your community by volunteering at the neighborhood center. Or by helping little old ladies. Or by recycling or anything else. You notice that Paul does not advocate a certain type of social involvement, but rather he advocates, he commands a social contrast. You see, we are not told what to do, but we are told that as we live the Christian life, others will look and see us and see that we are different, that we are lights, stars in the universe, Paul says, that we do this in the midst of a generation that is dark. Not social involvement, but social contrast. You see, the Christian life is not a set of rules and regulations, but it is critically important to the Christian. We are called to be active in our conduct. And the aim of this conduct is clear as well from Paul's words. You see, the aim of this conduct is to be children of God. Look with me at verse 15. We are to do all things without grumbling and questioning. 
that we might be children of God. With the purpose that, with the result that we might be children of God. That we be children of God. Now, I want to note something for you. This word here for be is not the ordinary word for to be, the common word. But it still is a word that means to exist as, to be. It could be used in the future to mean to become. It is the word that we get various forms of existence from. Genesis, the beginning of existence, comes from a root of this word. Now, some translations, I think, trying to protect against some error, will use the words prove to be. But I think it's stronger than that. I think we are to act not so that we would just prove or show others what we are, but rather so that we work out the very existence of who we are. You see, this is a present reality. It doesn't say in our text that you would be who you were or be who you might be or will be. It's you are to be the children of God right now. It is not wishful thinking. It is not a fond hope. It is not a supreme endeavor that we are to go after. This is part of being a Christian. And this shouldn't surprise us because the work that makes us a Christian, the work that allows us to be blameless, to do things without grumbling or complaining, is God's work. We are children of God because of the work of God. John puts it this way in John chapter 1, verse 12. He says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And who is it that receives Him? Is it anyone who can fashion up the faith to believe in God? No. It's those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, God Himself creates us a new creation, able to live the Christian life in a world that is dark. He says that the very thing that does this is the Word of God itself, that we are begotten by the Word of God. This is truly the work of God. And so our growth in Christian conduct is the natural growth of a child of God. We're not surprised when children move from crawling to walking, to running. It's expected. If your child doesn't crawl at a certain age, you become concerned, don't you? You take them to the doctor. You get tests done. If your child is late in walking, you become concerned. You ask other parents for advice. What can I do? It's, this is what they're supposed to do at this age. And everyone has advice. You see, the Christian is called to live after this fashion. It should be natural. It should not be something delegated to a few, to leaders, to super-Christians. It's a part of everyone in the church. But remember always that this order is we are children of God and then we act after the fashion of children of God. Ask yourself this morning, are you reversing that order? Are you thinking that you could get into God's good graces, as it were, by being good, by being a better husband? If I just make up a better list and I'm just more efficient with my children, if I just read my Bible more, if I just pray harder and longer and better, then God will love me. 
You see, Paul here is telling you that you cannot do that. That you can only act as a child of God. That you can only see light in your life. That you can only put off grumbling and complaining if God himself reaches down by his grace and touches you and renews you and gives you life again. So if this morning you do not know a life that we are going to talk about, a life without grumbling or complaining, if you don't even know what blamelessness means, don't start by investigating that. Start by looking to the one who is blameless, the one who never grumbles, the one who never complains, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him first before you seek any change in your life. This is the call to be active. And how we do this, Paul says, is by being who we are. The first thing he does in typical Pauline fashion is he tells us what we are to put off. And then he will tell us what we are to put on. The first thing he tells us to put off is grumbling. Now, I want to first advise you that grumbling is not criticism. Not all criticism is bad. If it were, we would never improve, right? There are an entire industry of people, life coaches, advisors, counselors, who were built around criticism for the purpose of building up. Criticism for the purpose of pointing toward bigger and better things. And that's true even in the church. Except for in the church, we don't call them counselors. We don't call them life coaches. We call them pastors, ministers elders. And so not all criticism is grumbling. You don't have to have a Pollyanna attitude to the world to be a Christian. But it is a very particular type of criticism. It is a criticism that is born out of selfish complaining, grumbling about things, seeing things and not being satisfied with them as they are especially as they pertain particularly to us. It's as if we drive down the highway and we expect every other car on the highway to adapt themselves to our needs. You know what this is like. If you've never experienced this, you need to take a harder look at the ninth commandment because we drive on the highways and the person ahead of us is driving what? Too slow. Too slow for what? For me. The person who flies by us is driving too fast. Too fast for whom? Too fast for me. How fast am I driving? In the words of the great nursery rhyme, just right. Everything revolves around me. And this is indicative of our society, isn't it? We have a society that is so selfish and self-centered that everything that we see, whether it be who should be the coach of a football team or what bill Congress should pass, or what church we should go to, all revolves around how does it affect me? How am I made happier? How am I made better? Now, I think some of this is as a result of the breakdown of the family and the way in which we relate to one another as we become more compartmentalized and have to share less. I was listening to John MacArthur this week, and he had a wonderful illustration of this. He said that nowadays where we have smaller families and less hospitality, mom will say to kids one and two, what would you like for dinner tonight? Well, okay, 
All right, I'll make that for you. If you want two different things, I'll make this for you and I'll make that for you. He said, years ago when families were five, six, eight, and when people came in, your neighbors came in and you invited them, if you looked at the meal that was put in front of you and you said, well, I don't like this. The person next to you said, good, I'll take it. And you were left with nothing. You see, but we live now in a society that is focused upon ourselves. We're unbalanced on small matters. Have you found yourself looking at the newspaper or listening to a story and are shocked by how small an issue or an offense causes someone to go completely crazy? So crazy that we now have a new word for it. We call it going postal. Someone is cut off at a red light and they pull out a machine gun and shoot someone. Someone gets the smallest offense at work and they quit. Someone is nagged a very short period of time and they throw their marriage away. You see, we have small, small offenses blown out of proportion. This is typical of grumbling. We see this in the scriptures. We see it in the book of Exodus. Paul, I'm sure, has this in his mind. If you'll flip with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 14, we'll look at just a few illustrations of this. Now, again, I want you to remember this idea of grumbling. It is, it is an outward manifestation of self-centered thinking in which selfishness and imbalance on small matters is manifest. Now, the Israelites, just to refresh your memory, they have been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And they are now on their way out of Egypt, having been redeemed by the mighty hand of God. They have seen God turn the sky black. They have seen God kill the firstborn of everyone among the Egyptians. They have seen him rain hail that fires. They have seen him turn the Nile to blood. And they are now out of their way. And in chapter 14, they come across a Red Sea. And what do they say in verse 11? Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you took us out this way? Come on, God. What are you doing? Aren't you smart enough to see there's a sea in front of us and we're all going to be killed? So God, in his mercy and grace, parts the Red Sea. You know that story. We would think now, okay, the people of Israel, they've been redeemed. They've gone out with a mighty army. They've spoiled the Egyptians. The Red Sea has burst in front of them. They see the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. God's manifest presence in their life every single day. And so what do they do? They go out here in chapter 15, beginning at verse 22. They go out and they find some water. And they see and the water is bitter. Now, this is a people that have just been redeemed from slavery and death and seeing the sea part in front of them, and they get to some water that doesn't taste good, and they immediately go to complaining. Well, if you only could have got us better water. You could just hear it. It's what your kids do under their breath. It's what your spouse does when he or she thinks you're not listening. Well, you know, you think this powerful God could just give us some water. All I'm asking for is a little bit of water. I'm thirsty here, you know. On and on and on. That low, grumbling tone. We see it again. In chapter 16, now the water's been fixed and now they need food. And what do they do? They start complaining about the food. And then after they're given food, manna from heaven, what do they do? They complain about the type of food that they get. Now, before you get too quick 
to shake your head and tisk tisk tisk. The Israelites, you need to remember that the Exodus is an image. It's a picture of the Christian life. It's written down for our instruction to instruct us not just how we ought to act, but sometimes how we are acting to remind us. This is the kind of grumbling that can be seen in the world and often, too often, in the church. And it's even found in the word. I won't bore you with the Greek, but it's, it sounds like a rumble, grumble, kind of word. It's a very guttural word. There's lots of G's in it. It even sounds miserable. But then what is the second thing that Paul says we're not to do? We're not to question. Now, this kind of questioning does not mean like some of you have trained your children well to do. When something is coming up, they say, excuse me, sir, I have a question about this. No, that's not this kind of questioning. This is the kind of questioning that is an inward attitude that corresponds to the outward attitude. This is a bit more sophisticated than grumbling, right? As we grow and as our children grow and we see them, it's how we become more sophisticated at complaining about our lot. The three-year-old complains about dinner by kicking and screaming on the floor. It's typically not how a 12-year-old complains. It's typically not how an 18-year-old complains. But it's the same substance on the inside. It's a, it's a, a self-centered criti- criticism. It's an attitude of the heart that says, this isn't right, it shouldn't be, I'm not being provided for. And so Paul is saying here, there should be no sort of self-centered criticism of any kind. The word he actually uses here for without, without grumbling, without questioning, is almost a physical preposition. You are without something when you take it and you take it outside. You separate it out. It is apart. It is almost a physical picture that Paul wants you to have in your mind. Now, why is this? It's because at its heart, grumbling, questioning, complaining is really a denial of the providence of God, isn't it? If only I had a better job. Well, who's in charge of giving me a better job? Well, if only my spouse were more concerned about me. Well, who's in charge of your spouse? Well, if only I had more money. Well, who's in charge of your life, ultimately? Isn't it the Lord? And so grumbling and complaining is really grumbling and complaining about what God has given to us, isn't it? It's just like what happened in the Exodus. And if we think about it, even worse than that, grumbling and complaining is a denial of God's grace. Because at the heart of a grumble, a groan, a complaint is the words, I deserve. I deserve a car going in front of me faster. I deserve more money. I deserve more recognition. I deserve people who care about my needs. Which is the exact opposite of the Christian life. Which says, I deserve nothing. Well, no, I deserve hell and punishment for eternity. But God in His grace has redeemed me. In His grace, He has given me His Word. In His grace, He has given me this family. In His grace, He has given me the skills that I have to provide for myself. And you see, what Paul is saying here, this is not about grumbling and complaining so that we have a nice, placid, quiet church. 
This is getting rid of grumbling and complaining because it denies the very heart of the gospel. That everything that we have is of grace. So Paul says, don't do this. You're actually working against your salvation. You're not working out your salvation. Put this off. But then he turns, typically as he does, to tell us what we are to put on. What are we to put on? First, we are to put on blamelessness. We are to be blameless. Being blameless has respect to the comments that we get from others. It has the idea of being, you may have heard this, without reproach. No one can accuse you. No one can start up an ethics investigation against you in which there is plausible case to be made. It does not mean that you are perfect. We're not called to be perfect by by God's grace now. Because blamelessness is characteristic of two of the most imperfect of giants of the faith. Abraham and Job. They're both called blameless and called to be blameless before God. And yet we see in Job one who complains against God. We see in Abraham one who lies in order to avoid what he thinks will be a difficult situation. Who doesn't trust God. So not perfect, but without reproach. That's how we are called to live our lives so that others cannot walk around us and say, well, you know that Christian life is all a bunch of junk. Look at him. Look at her. We're called to be blameless. We're also called to be innocent. Now, this is not innocent in the context that we talk about an innocent little baby. No, this is innocent in the sense that it is a comment that you make upon yourself. Being blameless is what others would say about you. Being innocent is what you would say about yourself. The word here actually means without mixture. That is, without a mixture of evil. What do we mean by that? We mean that it is something that we are not to be involved in ever. It's why, for example, our Lord says that when he sends out his disciples, he sends them out to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Have you ever wondered about that? Have you ever wondered about how you could act like a bird in order to be a better Christian? What does a dove do that makes it so innocent? No, what our Lord is saying here is that you are to be wise in what is going on around you, yet you are to be innocent and apart from it. You're not to mix it into your life. As you go out and live life, you need to be wise that others may take advantage of you. They may rob you and cheat you and steal from you. That when someone says, you know, I think maybe that car needs an entirely new engine, and I could probably do it for, oh, 10 or 11 grand. You say, wait a minute here. <laughs> We're not required as Christians to just say, well, of course, okay, you must be telling the truth. But at the same time, we are to be as far from that kind of attitude as possible. We are to live in such a way that we remove all criticism of ourselves so that we might have a clear conscience in front of others to be blameless, to be innocent, and then thirdly, to be without blemish. What does it mean to be without blemish? Well, those of you that have read your Old Testament would conjure up in your minds the sight of a lamb that is without blemish, without mark. It's an animal that you don't call spotty. You don't even call spot. It's completely without blemish, completely without mark. 
Now, the interesting thing is that we are called to be without blemish, but it's, this is a characteristic that we cannot do. How do you make yourself without spot? If you have a spot, how do you make yourself spotless? Well, one way is you walk around like Lady Macbeth, constantly washing your hands, saying, Out! Out, spot! Get out! And you wash them again. And you wash them again. You ever wonder what that looks like? Go over to the Middle East. That's exactly what Islam is. It is a constant washing of the hands. Trying to make oneself spotless. But you see, the Bible doesn't give us that directive. The Bible says that we are to be without blemish. We are to be like Jesus Christ. And the way we are like Jesus Christ is by being conformed to his image, by being made after Christ's image by Christ. Look with me, if you would, at the book of Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 21, Paul writes, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you miserable, rotten sinners, you speckled lambs, He says, you he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, this is the work of the living Christ. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 4 where he says that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, this is the work of God in our lives. This is not just the work of God in calling us to himself. It's the work of God in your life every single day. It's why Paul uses it in his marriage metaphor in Ephesians 5. He says that Christ is at work that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, you are called today, Christian, to be without any blemish. And if as you look around, you see all kinds of spots, marks, scars, scars from past sin, scars from bad relationships, scars from inability to understand the Scriptures, you need to know that Jesus Christ is at work in your life today making you without spot, without wrinkle, without any such thing, for His own glory that He might present you as a part of the bride of Christ, spotless for all eternity. Put off. Put on. Finally here, put out. We are called to live a life of no grumbling or complaining. We're called to live a life of blamelessness, blemishness, Without blemish. We are called also to live this life in the midst of a world. We are called to put our lives out on display for others. You see, Paul says we are to do this in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see the setting Paul has said for how we are to act? We are to do it in the midst of a generation that is crooked, that is twisted. When we think about crooked, we think about something that is bent. We might also think about something that is unfair. 
Paul, Peter uses the exact same word in 1 Peter 2, verse 18, when he talks about masters that are unfair, that are wicked, perverse. We are called to live the Christian life in the midst of an unfair, unfeeling world where its activities are contrary to the gospel. This is also a world that is twisted. It is deformed. It is departed from what is normal. You see, we look around and we think the things that we see are normal. And they are not. Thievery is not normal. Sexual abuse is not normal. Lying is not normal. Blasphemy is not normal. It is typical. But it is not normal. It is not what God created man to be. It is not what man will be. God is redeeming the world, the church, and his culture. God is doing this. And he is doing it by means of his people as they live in the midst of this generation. Now notice, Paul does not give us the opportunity to go form a Christian community somewhere. He doesn't say, go find a piece of empty land and build a town and build a church and don't allow anyone in who isn't a Christian and only listen to Christian music and only read Christian fiction and only read Christian news sources on the internet. No. Paul is saying we must think biblically and think Christianly about things in the midst of a crooked, perverse, twisted generation. He's taking the excuse away from me and from you when we are wont to say, well, you know, our lives would just be so much better and so much more holy if we lived in the days when they wrote the Westminster Confession. Or if we lived in the days of Luther. Or if we lived in the days of the Great Awakening. No. Paul says you are to live your life, a Christian life, a life that is a light in the midst of darkness. Why would Paul call us to this? Is Paul mean? Is God mean? Is he trying to test us, push us how far we can go till we break? Doesn't God know we need a rest from all the wickedness around us? You see, the reason that God puts us in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation is so that others might see the contrast. You see, you see light in darkness. And the darker the darkness, the brighter the light shines. You see, Paul says the church is to live a life that shines in the midst of the darkness. We are to shine as lights, as stars in the sky. Paul says. Now, it's the very opposite of being crooked and twisted. It involves shining the light of Christ into a dark world. Now, how does this happen? How are we to shine? First, I want you to think about the fact that light works by being itself. Right? A light itself shines. You put a light in a lantern to shine out. And so we are called first to be who we are, to be light. And by being light, we shine out in the world. This brings us, too, to the connotation of stars, because these lights that Paul talks about are also stars. And you may know that in the ancient world, stars were used 
primarily for navigation, for going through the difficulties of travels, of making it home from the journey safe. And so we are shining not just to give light to the deeds of the world, but to show the path of safety, of life and health by showing the scriptures in our very lives. This is what we are to do to be active in the midst of this. And we do this shining by holding forth the word of life. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the Christian life has nothing to do with doctrine. Because Paul says the exact opposite here. He says the way in which you shine, the way in which you know how you are to act, is by holding forth the word of God, the very word of life that he has given. He's very emphatic here. The word for holding fast is a word that we grip and hold on to. And we are doing it right now in the present tense. This is what we are to do. So we are called to be active. We are called to be who we are. And then finally and very briefly, we are called to be encouraged. Paul concludes this section by saying, first, your life is worthy. We need to be reminded of the worth of our life if we are to struggle through life. Isn't that true? We need encouragement along the road. And so what Paul says is, your life is worthy. It is worthy of the sacrifices that you will make. You are to do all of these things, Paul says, as a sacrifice of your faith, knowing that there is a greater end before you. He also puts it in a way in which I think is very practically encouraging. I won't say much about it because it's a little bit self-serving. But your life is worthy because it's also worthy of the sacrifice of your pastor. Paul says here, he says, I want you to do these things so that I might know I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. You see, ministers labor. We don't read the word for fun or for cocktail party conversation. We don't have long counseling sessions because we have nothing better to do. We don't put, go down on our knees in prayer because we're exhausted or tired. No. Paul says, his desire for the Philippians and my desire for you, Christ Church, is to live lives worthy of the gospel, shining out in the community, bringing others to faith in Christ, knowing that all that I have poured out into this ministry was not in vain. It will glorify God that in eternity I will see the great blessings that God has brought through you. You see, that's the great blessing of being a minister. You don't only get to see the blessings that you bring, you get to enjoy and own the blessings of all of your people. It's true also of those who teach Bible studies and who disciple and who work hard in the midst of the church. Your, white, your life is worthy. Your life is also joyful. It should be a life that is joyful both to you and to others, Paul says. Notice how he repeats it twice. He says, I am glad and I rejoice. And by the way, you should be glad and you should rejoice. This is the life of a Christian. Finally, you should be encouraged because your life is acceptable before God. Because all of this is done in this particular context. That in the day of Christ... Paul may be proud, that he may boast, that in the day of Christ, 
we might see the benefits and blessing of our lives. Christian, as you labor hard with toil in a world that is dark, crooked, and perverse, know that your worth is found in your acceptance before Jesus Christ, not in your boss, not in your neighbor, not in your schoolmate, not in your friend, but in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, let's conclude by looking back at Philippians chapter 1. I want you to just see how Paul is laying out very practically advice for this prayer. The first thing that he is doing is he is promoting unity. Look at what he says in verse 9. He wants their love to abound more and more. And then in verse 14 he says, the way you do that is by doing things without grumbling, without questioning. And then he says, I want you to move on toward a goal of looking like Jesus so that you might approve what is excellent in verse 10 and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Just like what he's saying in verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. And this is all for the ultimate purpose of the glory of God. Look at verse 10. Or excuse me, verse 11. To the glory and praise of God we are to do this. Just as Paul says in verse 16, that this is pointed toward the day of Christ. This is the call of the Christian to live a life that is worthy of Jesus Christ, that is noticed by others, that is focused upon a dark world. Are you up for the challenge, Christian? That's what church is all about. That's what the Christian life is all about.